This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, the all-in-one language app. With Rosetta Stone, you'll have everything you need to learn a language and use it in the real world. They offer immersive lessons, writing prompts, and engaging activities to prepare you for real-life conversations. You can pick and choose the lessons that work best for you and create a personalized experience that's both fun and engaging. Get ready for life's adventures with 50% off for I Know Dino listeners at rosettastone.com dino. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 368th episode, we have the final news from SVP 2021. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> At least the final dinosaur news. We've finally gotten through all of it. That means that we'll be sharing that bonus content very soon. Yes. But this week we have the non-avian theropod session as well as the paleopathology session. Two of my favorites, non-avian theropods. A lot of T-Rex talk going on there. Another Tyrannosaurus. And we have a bunch of other news as well, because Sabrina can't help herself. Really can't. <laughs> we also have Dinosaur of the Day, Hypsellospinus, and of course, our fun fact. But before we get into all of that, first, I want to thank some of our patrons for keeping our podcast running. And this week, we have two new patrons. We've got Mr. DNA. Nice. Nice to see you coming over from Jurassic Park. Thank you. <laughs> as well as the gray allosaurus. We had a fun little conversation about whether or not birds are considered reptiles. And then rounding out our shoutouts, we've got Jeff, Viatus, Pipiceratops, TRX Dinosaurs, James Pasco, Miriam, Sarasaurus Rex, and Tom. Yeah, thank you again, everybody. Yeah, it's awesome to see the community growing. So thank you to all of our new and existing patrons. So jumping into the news, we're going to kick it off with that non-avian theropod session from SVP. And up first, we've got an update on Dynamo Terror. Oh, nice. If that one sounds familiar, that's Andrew McDonald who wrote about it. Yeah, we interviewed him at some point. Yeah, we interviewed him in episode 233 a while ago. And at the time, I remember when Dynamo Terror was named and being a little bit bummed because it's such a cool name. But the original find was pretty sparse. It, it was like basically some frontals. So like the top middle of the head, basically, and a little bit else, but really not a whole lot going on. And then after that, in 2020, Yoon showed that two autapomorphies in Dynamo Terror are variable in other Tyrannosaurs. So in other words, the things that made Dynamo Terror unique might have just been individual variation from an existing Tyrannosaur. Mm. One of those uh, tapomorphies is seen as variable in Displetosaurus, and the other one was in Teratophonius. So it was possible that Dynamotera might not be a valid genus. But new fossils to the rescue. Nice. <laughs> they found what is specimen WSC1027, Western Science Center, WSC, which is a much more complete Tyrannosaurid from the Menifee Formation. And so, that's in New Mexico. Yeah. So it's, it's not just more bones from the first individual. It's another individual, 
but they do overlap. So that it includes a lot of the skull and the part of the skull that's there matches with the previous features, the unique features, you know, that may or may not have been unique in Dynamo Terror. So pretty confident that it's the same species. But in addition to having a lot more of the skull, we also have most of the right jaw, some ribs of vertebra, some hip bones, gastralia, and a shoulder. Much more complete. Oh yeah, way, 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 way better. (laughs) (laughs) Although unfortunately there weren't any legs or arms, and arms are one of the most interesting parts of Tyrannosaurus when you can find them. Well, they already found more fossils. They might find even more. That's true, yeah. They also found that details which were previously thought to be damaged areas turned out to be unique features. So in the original description, they only had those two autapomorphies, but they were like, oh, some of these things do look unique, but it might just be damaged, so we're not going to include it. And it turned out that those weren't damaged spots. They actually were unique, so it added even more unique characters to it. More fuel for keeping this as a valid genus. Oh, yeah, I think it's pretty solidly its own genus at this point. Not to mention the fact that it's a tyrannosaur from New Mexico and there's not a lot going on there (laughs) in that family. They also found several new features in the frontals, as well as a lesion on the jaw that could be interpreted as a bite mark from another tyrannosaur. That happens all the time. They're biting each other on the face. Mixing some paleopathologies with this theropod session. That's true, yeah. Sometimes it's hard to break them down into one specific session. Phylogenetically, now that we have a little bit more complete of a Dynamo Terror individual to work from, they can tell that it's close to Lythronax and Teratophonius. They even proposed an anagenesis sequence where one species is evolving into the next, into the next, where they have Lythronax evolving into Dynamo Terror and that evolving into Teratophonius. Oh, that'd be cool. But I, it's really hard to know, though. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about how the different species of Triceratops is hard to prove, let alone these Tyrannosaurs. I don't know. Maybe. Could be. They all lived within about 300 kilometers of each other, so they were fairly close. But the ages are unknown, which is sort of an important factor when you're talking about anagenesis. We can say, though, that Dynamo Terror is over 78 million years ago. So that is pretty old for a tyrannosaur. And others have proposed a different tyrannosaur anagenesis sequence in northern Laramidia, because this is southern Laramidia, which is Thanatotheristes into Displetosaurus, specifically Displetosaurus taurusus into Displetosaurus horneri. So we might have multi- we might have a northern Laramidia, in other words, western North America, series of tyrannosaur evolution and a southern laramidia series of tyrannosaur evolution pretty cool oh also the western science center has a new dynamo terror exhibit and that includes a sculpted head by brian ang and a skeletal reconstruction and fossils sounds like a whole bunch of cool stuff yeah it sounds really great last time we were there they had a little bit of dinosaur stuff on display but not nearly as much they keep finding more and more (laughs) <laughs> and making more exhibit space. Last time we were there, they said they were expanding the dinosaur area. It just keeps going. Up next, we've got a talk by Tom Holtz. You've definitely heard that name before if you've read many dinosaur books, because he writes a lot of them. Oh, yeah. And we interviewed him in episode 217. <laughs> you've got the encyclopedia of interviewees ready to go. Mm-hmm. So Tom was looking at Tyrannosaurs, which would not be surprising if you know 
Tom. He mm-hmm. loves Tyrannosaurus. But really, specifically, what he's looking at is theropod ecomorpho space. So uh, basically, when you're looking at different groups, or as he called them, guilds of theropods, how they situated themselves in the ecosystem, like what niches they were filling, and how they might have interacted or why they might have had these different spaces in the ecosystem. You can also think of them as clusters. Yeah, if you're like graphing it, then you've got clusters. So as a starting point, we know that there was a wide variety of large predatory theropods, or, and also medium predatory theropods, in the Jurassic and early Cretaceous, and especially that there were more of them than there were in the late Cretaceous. And previously, it's been sort of hypothesized or theorized that tyrannosaurs, as they grew up, filled different ecological niches, and therefore there were less niches available for other animals because tyrannosaurs are sort of gobbling up a lot of them. But in order to look at just how much their performance changed over time, there are a lot of different things you can look at. You can look at what their prey size was, how they caught that prey, how they killed the prey, how they hunted, if it was solitary in a group, if they hunted in the daytime or at night, if they hunted different in different seasons. So some animals like scavenge in one season and hunt in other seasons, as well as several other things. But there's basically only two that get recorded in the bone. <laughs> In, in the fossil record. So you can pretty well figure out how they caught prey, and you can tell pretty well how they killed the prey once they caught it. And you can do that by looking at their skulls, their teeth, their claws, and then the movement abilities. So in other words, like their legs and arms and things like that, you can see basically, did they have the big muscle attachment points for running quickly and catching stuff? Or did they have big, strong arms for slashing at things or grabbing things. And that'll help you figure out exactly how they hunted. Unfortunately, it's really hard to estimate the success rate and the average maximum speed of hunting dinosaurs. So mostly we have to look at overall sizes of leg proportions and skull proportions, and then we can kind of compare them to one another rather than trying to figure out exactly how fast it ran and exactly how strong different muscles are. You can say that this one is stronger than this other group. So in other words, like compare the bite force of a T-Rex to an Allosaurus. Well, you wouldn't do that because they didn't live at the same time, (laughs) (laughs) but maybe to a raptor that was around at the same time or something. In the analysis, they only included carnivorous theropods that were over 10 kilograms, so there's no therizinosaurs, and (laughs) there's none of the little tiny like microraptors or anything like that. And usually they looked at the largest adult only, and specifically they wanted to look at single specimens and not composites so that you get the proportions as accurate as possible. Because anytime you're combining multiple individuals, there's a possibility that you're throwing something out of whack and you've got like a, a leg from an adult and an arm from a subadult. Right. And you're going to get weird proportions. So they were looking at the largest adults. Yeah, I guess the largest complete adults or complete enough that they could get their analysis. Although there was one exception, which is including juvenile tyrannosaurs. And I think that's because it's Tom Holtz. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how could you not? <laughs> they also only included individuals that had at least the skull, forelimb, pelvis, and hind limb, or at most were missing one of those four things. Right, because you want to be able to compare the same bones. Exactly. 
Unfortunately, that means that they couldn't include most Megaraptorans or Spinosaurids or even Utah Raptor since we don't have any single individual of them with all the necessary bones. I mean, we definitely do have on this <laughs> Utah Raptor with all of that. It just hasn't been prepared out of that amazing Utah Raptor block and described yet. But someday. Yeah, we will have it sooner or later. And then you can include it into the analysis here. So they used predicted values from ancestors to compare to the actual values and get what they call residual values. So basically it's the deviation from an expected value. So if you see, say you have a proportion of leg to arm, and then you know that the animal got bigger, you'd expect both the legs and arms to get bigger at the same rate. But if you're looking at a T-Rex, for example, you're going to see the residual is the arms are shrinking a ton. They may not have literally shrunk because if it's coming from a much smaller animal, the arms might have actually stayed the same. But what's important is that relative change from what's predicted. The most interesting takeaway, I think, is that over time, the animals in the ecosystems were more variable later in time. So in other words, in the Jurassic, they were the least variable. In the early Cretaceous, they were a little bit more variable. And by the late Cretaceous, they were the most different, like the different theropod groups were the most different from one another. And this is only talking about large non-avian theropods, too. If you include all the birds and stuff that were evolving, then it's really going off the rails in terms of evolution and different groups. Generally, what they found is that tyrannosauroids and abelosaurids occupy very different ecomorpha space. So when you're plotting, say, like the strength of different limbs or how fast they can move or how strong they can bite and things like that, they're quite separated. Interestingly, juvenile tyrannosaurs were less of an outlier than adult tyrannosaurs, so they were a little bit more similar to what you'd find in, say, the Jurassic or early Cretaceous. But obviously, by the time they got to be adult size, they were in a league of their own doing their own total thing. <laughs> yep. Taking over. <laughs> yep. So the hypothesis here is that maybe later dinosaurs were more varied because their prey was more varied. For example, ceratopsians and titanosaurs and hadrosaurs had all evolved, and there might be a different set of characteristics that you need in order to hunt each of those groups of herbivores. It's also possible that there was some other factor that we don't know about. For example, they actually correlated pollen types with the dinosaur ranges. For example, they found that one type of pollen was found where you find tyrannosaurs, and a different type of pollen was found where you get abelosaurids. The pollen, I'm guessing, would affect what herbivores are around, too, because that would affect what plants there are that they eat. Yeah, I think you're right. There might be two versions of the same thing, saying that they were different predators because there was different prey and that there was different predators because there was different pollen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's sort of a missing step because you're right. There's different prey because there's different pollen. Yeah, yeah. So it's probably a correlation, not causation type thing there. But it is really interesting. And it, it was sort of posed as a maybe foundational piece of work. So we can plug in more dinosaurs, put in more pollen, put in more attributes as we find more complete individuals where we have the skull and the limbs. Yeah, get that Utah raptor in there. Exactly. Then, yeah, maybe we'll be able to flesh out a little bit better why these animals were in different places and how they interacted. Then keeping on the T-Rex train, we've got an update by Charles Marshall on the total number of T-Rex estimate. And we covered that paper as our fun fact in episode 335. That was the one where it talked about 
billions of T-Rex that <laughs> yeah. lived. <laughs> well, you even figured out what episode this was from. That's good. <laughs> so what they used was a thing called Dammoth's Law, and that's that bigger animals are less dense on a landscape. It's pretty intuitive, you know, like bacteria. There's billions of them in a very small space, whereas T-Rex, obviously, you can't fit billions of them on, say, your hand. What they did was they estimated two and a half billion T-Rex individuals that ever lived. That was the result of their earlier research. And the way they got there was by multiplying the range of population densities by the range of plausible geographic ranges. And they used a Monte Carlo simulation for that. So basically, if you imagine you've got like a bell curve of population density options. So maybe there's one T-Rex per square mile. Maybe it's more like one per hundred or thousand square miles. And then you've also got your range of geographies. So maybe they only ever lived in the Hell Creek where we find their fossils, or maybe they were all over North America. So you get these really large bell curves. And when you multiply them together, it just gets even bigger. So that's how you end up with these huge ranges. One example of a real life situation where just looking at the size of the animal really doesn't tell you much about how frequently you'll find them in the environment is the spotted hyena and jaguar. So they're both about the same size and both obviously fill similar ecological niches. You know, they both eat meat. They both hunt a fair amount of the time, although, you know, one of them scavenges a little bit more than the other. But the density of the hyena is a hundred times higher than the jaguar. <laughs> like from a fossil record, there's no way you would guess that just by looking at these animals. Like you have to observe them. So if you're estimating something like a T-Rex, you have to include at least that factor of a hundred X in your estimation. So I think we might've covered this back in the earlier episode, but as a reminder, they estimated that there were around 3,000 to 300,000 individual T-Rex individuals, T-Rexes, roaming around at any given time in North America with an average of about 20,000 individuals. That's sort of their, their median in their bell curve. They also estimated that T-Rex was around between 1.2 to 3.6 million years, basically centered around that 2 million year mark that we always say like a typical species exists before evolving into something else or going extinct. And they included their generation time was about 18 to 20 years, which is a surprisingly narrow range. And they were saying, like, we're really surprised that it came up with such a specific number. But again, remember, they had that huge growth spurt, just like we do. So they probably weren't mating in their early teenage years because they were still very small and not even close to skeletally mature. And they didn't really live beyond about 30 so that really narrows down the range of your average generation. Mm -hmm. Given that they were around for about 2 million years, that gives you about 100,000 generations of T-Rex, which really isn't that many when you think about it. That's more than I had thought about before I read that paper. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. And then when you combine that with, you know, how much space they took up, how dense they were on the landscape, all that kind of stuff, you end up with the estimate of the total number of T-Rex that were ever alive is between 140 million and 42 billion. And again, the average is about two and a half billion. So there were almost certainly over 100 million T-Rex throughout the history of Earth and probably less than 42 billion. So I think humans have already outpaced what <laughs> T-Rex achieved because I think there have already been over 42 billion people, I would guess, considering there's like 8 billion just right now. Yeah. 
We keep growing in number. Yeah. We're a lot smaller than a T-Rex, though. Mm-hmm. And we've got farming. The really interesting thing they added is that if you look specifically at Hell Creek and you estimate basically how many T-Rex would have lived on that landscape and using that same, they were around for a little over 2 million years, they estimate that we've found between one in every 1,100 T-Rex individuals and one in every 260,000 individuals, which is an insanely high number. And it makes me wonder if there were actually way more T-Rex individuals, like they were way more dense on the landscape than those estimates have it. These are estimates of what we found? Yeah, that's like actual collected T-Rex fossils, like that humans have gone out into the field and dug out of the ground. If the numbers are right on the density of T-Rex, mm-hmm. then that means that we've we've found somewhere between one in a thousand T-Rex that ever lived in the Hell Creek or one in a quarter million. But both of those numbers are crazy. Even one in a quarter million, like things we talk about all the time, like mathematically, things just don't really fossilize. Mm-hmm. It's so rare that anything fossilizes that the idea that we've even found one out of every 260,000 that ever lived is crazy. Yeah. So. Talk about needle in the haystack. Yeah. But like in this case, it's not needle in the haystack. It's more like, I don't know, something that there's one in a thousand of <laughs> jelly bean in a jelly bean jar. Sure. <laughs> If those numbers are right, then that's amazing. And if they're wrong, it means that there were way more T-Rex living and that they were really dense on the landscape, which would probably mean that they at least got along a little bit in my mind, because otherwise they would just be eating each other all the time. Although they do have tooth marks on their face. so Maybe that's what was happening. There are too many of them and they got aggressive. (laughs) Yeah. Overpopulation of T-Rex. Up next, we've got Charlotte Hammond, who was talking about the two medicine formation, and specifically Sor Ornitholestes and Bambi Raptor. You might be familiar with those little cuties. Dromaeosaurids. Yeah. So I guess they're not that cute because they could probably tear your face off. Maybe from a distance. They're cute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so those are the only two Dromaeosaurids that have been named from the two medicine formation so far, but others may be named soon. There's a little tease there. Pretty exciting. In the 1990s, they found maxillae, basically the upper jaw where the teeth stick down from it, from an adult and a juvenile. The adult bone is in pretty good shape. It's about 9.4 centimeters or 3.7 inches long. And unfortunately, the juvenile maxilla is in significantly worse shape. We can tell it's smaller, but it's hard to get an overall size because it's just like pretty fragmentary. The adult has previously been referred to Bambi Raptor, which is supported by this new analysis as well. But the juvenile specimen does not look like a Bambi Raptor. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Basically, if you're wondering what's wrong about it, the hole in the snout is more or less pointing the wrong direction, it's sort of like angled down, whereas it should be angled up if it's a Bambi Raptor. What they found in their analysis is that the juvenile looks a lot more like Sor Ornitholestes, which would mean that we now would have a juvenile and an adult Sor Ornitholestes. And then when looking at the Bambi Raptor, they found that the holotype of Bambi Raptor is only about half the size of this adult Bambi Raptor maxilla that they found. It's a big difference. 
Yeah, and it means that the Bambiraptor holotype was a smaller juvenile than previously thought. So previously they thought that they knew that Bambiraptor and the holotype were probably a juvenile, and they estimated it was maybe about 75% of the fold size. But based on this maxilla from a Bambiraptor, I think it was probably only about half of the full size. So if you're a fan of Bambiraptor, you got to scale up your <laughs> adult specimen a little bit because it turned out to be a little bit bigger than we previously thought. Yeah, when they scaled the holotype to this new specimen, they found that it all lined up perfectly too. So partly how they know. Yeah, and it that's an example of isometric growth, basically that the young individuals look exactly like miniature versions of the adults. Just like a lot of sauropods growing all isometrically. <laughs> yep. And then last in the non-avian theropod session, we've got an update on some Egyptian dinosaurs, courtesy of Bilal Salem. They were looking at abelosaurids in Egypt, and there have been abelosaurid teeth found in Egypt going all the way back to the Ernst Stromer days of 1921. It's part of Stromer's riddle. Why are there so many carnivores in this area? Yeah. Yeah, the first way they found that was all the carnivore teeth <laughs> everywhere for sure, which I wonder a little bit that might have been an overestimation of how many carnivores there were not knowing that theropods went through teeth like sharks. But there were still a lot of carnivores for a small area. There have also been some reported abelosaurid finds in Egypt over the years that weren't just teeth. And some of those were very recent with Mansoura University starting to do lots of field work around there. I'm very excited about them in particular because of how much cool stuff there is in Egypt. Mm -hmm. So one example is they found Mansurosaurus a few years ago, the sauropod. They also found an abelosaurid tooth and vertebra in the Bahari Oasis, which is one of the major spots to find dinosaurs in Egypt. And that vertebra that they found is probably the 10th neck vertebra, meaning that it's near the shoulder because they start at the head and count up going back. They have a lot of vertebrae. There's 10 even in a theropod. But they found that this new abelosaurid is probably smaller than Carnotaurus, but larger than Manjungasaurus. So it's still a, a fairly large theropod. They estimated it's about six meters or 19 feet long, which they called medium-sized. Yep. Of course, that's compared to other abelosaurids and not compared to other dinosaurs. But it was about as tall as a person, so terrifying for sure. Mm -hmm. Certainly much heavier and sharper than a person. <laughs> yeah, just factor in the teeth and the claws. Yeah. But either way, it is the first confirmed fossil of an abelosaurid from the Bahari Oasis. Yeah, and they said this helps show more similarities with the Bahari theropods to the theropods in the ChemChem group. The ChemChem is in Morocco, right? Yes. Where we've found like spinosaurus in both places, for example. And it helps this find of the abelosaurid helps show a wide geographic distribution of abelosaurids across what's now North Africa in the middle Cretaceous. And it shows, you know, there's diversity in these large bodied non avian theropods. And they also ended with the Trans Saharan Seaway did not represent a significant barrier to large bodied theropod dispersal during this time. Yeah, their their version of the Western Interior Seaway, which was a big barrier in North America. Yes. <laughs> but in what's now North Africa, 
the theropods were able to get around. The Morrison Formation is by far the most famous Jurassic site in the United States, and I would argue in the world. Especially for sauropods. It does have some fantastic sauropods. They are spread across multiple states, and the Morrison Formation covers a good portion of western Colorado, and that's where this week's sponsor, the Colorado Northwestern Community College, or CNCC, comes in. Possibly the most famous sauropod from the Morrison Formation is Brachiosaurus, and the Morrison Formation also includes two other very famous dinosaurs, Allosaurus and Stegosaurus, and CNCC actually has an active dig site right now with all three of those amazing dinosaurs in one site. Nice. And even better, you can join them digging up those bones this summer. They're offering 16-day field programs where you can dig up bones with expert local paleontologists from the college. There's two scheduled digs. The first one's July 6th to July 20th. The second one is July 22nd to August 5th. But they are filling up, so be sure that you sign up now. You can go to cncc.edu slash dinodig to get all the details. Make sure you register online by May 31st, but do it even sooner because, again, those spots are going to be full soon. Again, that's cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, world-class language learning for the world's best moms. It's almost Mother's Day after all. We're going to continue our story from last time about our trip to the Taipei Zoo in Taiwan. Yeah, we definitely recommend the Taipei Zoo in Taiwan. They have a really cool dinosaur museum featuring all the highlights like Deinonychus, T-Rex, Triceratops. So we had a really great time. And then we decided to take the train back and we had some more aha moments with our language learning journey. Yeah, we had to read some maps to navigate home. And of course, a lot of the things are translated into English, but not everything is translated. So it helps a lot if you know some of the local language. It's also very nice to be able to understand announcements when you're on public transportation. Yes, because things can change sometimes. And as a bonus, we were on the train at the time when everyone was coming home from work, so I got to practice even more by listening in on conversations. Not that I was trying, but we were elbow to elbow with people, so it was hard not to hear what they were saying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There wasn't anything too juicy, mostly people talking about what they're going to have for dinner. But a lot of the early phrases I learned in Chinese had to do with food, so I felt pretty good about what I could understand. And Rosetta Stone can help you have your own proud moments. Yes, and the lessons are short, so you can fit them into your busy schedule. And for a limited time, you can get all of Rosetta Stone's 25 language courses for just $179, which is a huge discount off of the usual $399. And you can do that at rosettastone.com slash dino. Again, that's rosettastone.com slash D-I-N-O. All right, now on to the paleopathology and paleohistology talks and posters. I love paleopathologies. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I, f- I feel a little bit bad about liking them so much because there was some animal in pain because of this pathology, but they teach us so much about the sort of things that they got up to because you only get injured in specific ways if you're doing specific things. True. So this first talk is more on the histology side than the pathology side. Histology is cool too. <laughs> yes. Slicing open bones and looking at them under a mis- microscope. Yeah. So this talk was by Evan Jevnikar about T-Rex growth strategies. And T-Rex had some extreme growth strategies. So how do you know the variation in growth rates between individuals of T-Rex? What they did was they looked at eight T-Rex specimens 
Most of them have nicknames, Scotty, Sue, Petey, B-Rex, G-Rex, Wankorex. Then you've got M-O-R-009, M-P-C-D-107-7. At this point, you should probably give them nicknames. Yeah, I think so. And these specimens, they ranged in age from three years to older than 28 years. So you've got a good range. Yeah. They also included a juvenile Tarbosaurus to anchor their analysis and kind of give an estimate in the first few years of life. And what they did was they compared lags, which are like those tree rings, to Massospondylus because Massospondylus have what's called highly plastic development where their growth rates adapt based on their environment. And they wanted to see if they had good growth models. And they confirmed, yes, we've got good growth models for T-Rex. And they found two growth strategies in a sample of the adult T-Rex. They found that some grew faster and smaller and others grew slower and bigger. Hmm. Slower and bigger. That's the slow and steady wins the race. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Now, the growth rates of the juvenile T-Rex were different uh, based on their model those grew much larger and much, much slower and wouldn't be skeletally mature until after age 87, if you're just kind of extrapolating there. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the specimens was hypothesized to be a nanotyrannosaur. So they decided to make a growth chart of just the juvenile specimens, which is the the quote-unquote nanotyrannus and the tarbosaurus, and they treated them as a different taxon and found the growth rate there to be much more normal but smaller than the average adult T-Rex specimen. So when she took them out, then it, w- it wasn't going to take them till age 87 to grow. Mm. <laughs> they said, you know, looking at the data, it's possible that female T-Rex, like B-Rex, B-Rex has the medullary bone, matured earlier and was smaller. And maybe these two growth strategies could be linked to sexual dimorphism. Hmm. The faster, smaller ones might be female. The slower, bigger ones might be male. Interesting. I wonder why they picked the male for the bigger one. It's because B-Rex has the medullary bone, so B-Rex might be a female, and B-Rex matured earlier and was smaller. Oh, interesting. That's clever. Mm -hmm. This could also help explain the presence of medullary bone at an earlier age, because it's done growing by that point. Mm. But currently, they said this hypothesis cannot be tested because there's only one specimen available as of now, B-Rex. That would be another way, if it's true, the dinosaurs are like people because people, the females, go through puberty earlier and don't get as big. True. It'd be the same as T-Rex. <laughs> I guess so. Another hypothesis based on the data, if you're not assuming male versus female, is that the growth model seems to be it's an early juvenile until about five years old, then a late juvenile until 10 or 11 years old, a subadult until it's 16 or 17, and then it's an adult reaching skeletal maturity around age 24, which then that works in with what we talked about earlier, the generations between 18 to 20 years for T-Rex. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. It, I wonder, too, because they, the Thomas Carr paper of T-Rex growth had a very sharp S-curve. So if you only looked at the early individuals, you would see that they were growing really slowly, but then they died before they got to the the teenage years when they like exploded in mm-hmm. growth. So yeah, it's it's hard to know what would have happened if the animal kept living. So to sum up, they did not observe any noticeable growth plasticity in this sample of T-Rex, you know, changing based on their environment. There seem to be two growth strategies with adult T-Rex that's 
may be linked to sexual dimorphism. And uh, overall, the growth, though, of reported juvenile specimens is unresolved within the species because it was just the model came out with it would take them to age 87. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. (laughs) And one thing that came up from the networking session is when you're looking at multiple individual studies of Allosaurus, Massospondylus, other dinosaurs where we've looked at growth, you can see that growth varies a lot among individuals. And maybe with T-Rex growth, it just varies more than we thought to. Mm. All right. Now, this one is it's pretty related, but we also are talking a little bit about pathologies. This was a talk by Aurora Cannonville about medullary bone in some non-avian dinosaurs. So kind of going on that it, again. It's very hard for us to know if a dinosaur was male or female. Yes. There's a definitive example of a female non-avian dinosaur that's represented by two fossils that died with the egg in the body cavity or within the pelvic canal. So we knew there was an egg in there. It's female. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much the only way we know how to definitively define an animal or a dinosaur as female. And there is the medullary bone part because it's deposited during the egg laying cycle. And that tissue does have some specific characteristics. And it can be found in any skeletal elements with red bone marrow. The medullary bone also has a different chemical composition from surrounding structural bone tissue. So that can help in figuring out whether a dinosaur was female. They said that medullary bone's been found in at least three theropod specimens, also in some pterosaurs and other animals. But these reports are contentious because medullary bone has some similarities to some pathological bone tissues. Yeah, that's the big thing. I I've I haven't seen a universal acceptance of any medullary bone specimen where everybody agrees like yes that is medullary bone there's always someone who's like I don't know it could be something else. Yeah. And so that can cast some doubt on some previous research done in that area. So what they did is they looked at more than 100 modern birds that died at different stages and they found that the position of the medullary bone is distributed pretty evenly. But pathological bone tissue was not distributed evenly. It was pretty uneven, and it was found in small areas. So they re-examined an Allosaurus tibia specimen that previously had been described as having medullary bone. And they found, though, that this distribution was limited to a very specific area and that it wasn't medullary bone. It was actually pathologic bone tissue. Mm, interesting. That reminds me of your paleothermometer thing where it's like if it's in one specific spot, then it's going to be an infection. Mm -hmm. If it's all over the place, then it's probably an actual biological signal. Yeah, yeah, very similar. They also looked at Dysaltosaurus, a tibia, that had previously been described as medullary bone, and they found, well, that distribution was in a small area and very localized, very specific area. So that's probably also pathological bone tissue. And they looked at an ornithomimid femur that... Uh, also was found to have medullary bone, but they found it was a very specific area and restricted to a very specific region. (laughs) So that's also probably pathologic bone tissue. So uh, a lot of rethinking happening here. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's even within a single bone, you can look at different parts of that bone and see whether or not there's medullary bone like throughout it or if it's just a pathology in one part of the bone. I think it's more you look at depending on what the tissue looks like and how specific of an area that is, then it's likely to be a pathology. 
But it's within the same bone. It's not like different bones in a skeleton. Oh, yes. Interesting. Yeah, I was thinking, oh, this is going to be another thing where it's super hard to know because we're there's all these specimens where we're not going to have enough bones from around the skeleton to know. But if you can do it within one bone, that's pretty helpful. Mm-hmm. But it does mean that you're going to have to take a lot of slices of histology out of these bones. Can't get away with just one slice looking for medullary bone. So the next talk is by Riley Samvathy about Allosaurus growth. Ooh, it's not as exciting as T-Rex growth, but <laughs> still interesting. It's still a theropod. <laughs> so Allosaurus specimens, they've been found mostly in Western North America, some in Western Europe. And that allowed them to look at the geographic variation of Allosaurus, because it's two different areas. So they looked at the maximum annual growth rate and the asymptotic body mass, which is when the skeleton is mature, using the paleohistology of different specimens. They wanted to know if Bergman's rule applied to dinosaurs. That's where the farther away you are from the equator, the <laughs> larger the animal. Good old Bergman's rule. Yeah. They found no clusters of growth curves and no nothing detectable of the paleo latitude of fossilization for an allosaurus and that specimen's growth. So Bergman's rule doesn't apply there. And no significant differences in growth and maximum body sizes among different populations. And previous studies had found the same thing with Platyosaurus and Tenontosaurus. So Interesting. Seems to not apply to these dinosaurs. Although looking at a, a paleo map of what it was like in the Jurassic when Allosaurus was around, there isn't a huge difference between North America and Europe in terms of latitude. True. What you really want to look at is something like Antarctica or Australia or something, and then something that was near the equator. So you can really <laughs> get a good signal. You can't always find, you can't <laughs> be like, all right, let's find all the Allosaurus specimens that are in, found in Antarctica and the equator. <laughs> yeah, oh, I know. Yeah. But if you want to look for Bergman's rule, usually they're talking about animals that are like really close to the equator and then things that are pretty close to the, because there's so much other, there are other things that affect body size. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking to really see Bergman's rule, it's better to have more than just, you know, 10, 20 degrees of latitude. Although they are really big. So I don't know, maybe you could pick up a 10% difference or 5% <laughs> difference. <laughs> yeah. I also wonder if those are even the exact same species though. There's a decent chance that across the Atlantic, you've got a different species on the other side, and there might just be a difference in size that way. So this next talk, there's actually a lot of talks on the histology side of things this year, is by Jennifer Botha about South African sauropodiforms and their growth strategies. So the end Triassic extinction, this is relatively understudied. You've got the Elliott Formation, though, that's got a lot of fossils and has that Triassic boundary. And they found changes in the climate and fluvial style. So if you look at the lower Elliot, it had these meandering perennial rivers. And then the upper Elliot had ephemeral rivers, flash floods, playa lakes. They said that you know, bone tissue and osteohistology can help us learn about growth rates and patterns, reproductive timing, ontogenetic stages, all kinds of things, and effects of the environment. So they looked at sauropodomorphs to see how they transitioned to sauropods. And they looked specifically at Cephaponosaurus and Ardonyx. And Cephaponosaurus, based on its growth marks, looked like it grew pretty rapidly. Both Cephaponosaurus and Ardonyx had growth patterns similar to other basal sauropodomorphs that had 
been studied histologically before, except for Musaurus, which had growth marks later on when it grew, which was similar to Eusauropoda, but that's an outlier. The growth marks in Cephaponosaurus and Aerodonyx were fairly regularly spaced, and so they found that changes in the climate didn't have a significant effect on how fast they grew. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because you'd figure the one that lived in the lower Elliott formation, that sounds like the nice one to live in. Mm -hmm. You've got the constant rivers. It's a nice, consistent environment. It's like being in California. It's like <laughs> Today, anyway. <laughs> it's, yeah, like the, the climate is relatively consistent. The upper Elliott formation sounds like living on a just crazy town. There's flash floods. It's like being in the desert, right? You've got mm -hmm. flash floods. You've got rivers coming up out of nowhere. Then you've got like lakes sprouting up when the ground floods and all that. And you'd think that living in that environment would be like a whole boom of food to eat. And then you'd get nothing for a while when the rivers dried up. But I guess they figured out a way to keep eating all the time or at least keep growing. Those sauropodomorphs, yeah. They did well. This next one, another histology one, presented by Brenna Hart Farrar, where they looked at a Centrosaurus and Myosaur individuals and then compared it to Gorgosaurus. They wanted to look at the growth series. It's interesting comparing a ceratopsian, a hadrosaur, and a theropod. Yeah, it could be they wanted to see how different they were. That makes sense. See how the different dinosaur groups look differently. Yeah. Especially all of these specimens were pretty young. Like the centrosaurus was a juvenile. They did a 3D histology of the humerus. There were three myosaur individuals. One was less than one year old. They looked at the humerus. One was a year and a half. They looked at the tibia, and then there was an older juvenile. They looked at the humerus, and they did 2D and 3D histology on that. And then they looked at a perinate gorgosaurus, so very young. They looked at metatarsal 3 and did 3D histology. Not quite as good as a tibia or a humerus, but the metatarsals in those theropods were still pretty long. Take pretty what you useful. can get, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, they found that Centrosaurus and Myasaurus had comparable resorption cavities and other changes in the bone, and they had similarly rapid absolute growth despite being older juveniles. Interesting. So at least the, the herbivores were doing similar stuff, even though they're very distant relatives. Yeah. So this next one was by D. Jade Simon, and they looked at the osteohistology of some North American oviraptorosaurs. So now we're cutting into oviraptors. Yeah. You can do histology on anything. Anything that the collections manager will let you cut into, I guess. <laughs> mm. So the question they were asking is, are the specimens that they have all representative of skeletally mature adults that are unique species? Or are we seeing different size variation and they're kind of masquerading as different species? Mm. Or is there a mix of both? We've got multiple different species of different sizes and also the ontogenetic stages of those, the growth stages. It's a question as old as time. Is it a baby or is it a new species? <laughs> or is it both? So they looked at the bone histology of oviraptorosaur specimens from Dinosaur Park and Horseshoe Canyon formations of Alberta and the Hell Creek Formation in Montana. There's three species known from Dinosaur Park, and they're all different sizes. Chidipes, Chirostenotes, and Cynanathus. 
These are based mostly on unassociated remains that have been grouped together mostly by size. For Sinanathus and Chidipes, no known specimen exists that preserves the jaw and postcranial body material together. From a histology point of view, it could be that Chirostenotes is a juvenile of Sinanathus or a taxon of similar size. Then you got the Horseshoe Canyon specimens. Epichirostenotes, which was originally Chirostenotes paragracilis, but then changed to Epichirostenotes courier in 2011. One of those where they split it off because they thought it was too different to be in the same genus. Mm-hmm. So it gets its own genus. Yes. And they also looked at a potoraptor. A potoraptor. Sounds like a <laughs> raptor that specializes on a potosaurus. <laughs> That'd be hard to do. True. They found that they had. These two specimens had some overlapping vertebrae, but Epichirostenotes did not preserve a long bone. That's the tibia femur. Or humerus. Yep. Or maybe a metatarsal. So they couldn't do histology on it. So it's possible that the Apotoraptor specimen could be a subadult of Epichirostenotes. Two dinosaurs I don't think I've ever heard of could be the same and lumped together. Then I'd only have to learn one new dinosaur. It's true. <laughs> then they also mentioned the Hell Creek Formation about Anzu and other specimens, but they're still doing research, so we'll have to look out for that in future work. And last from the talks in this session, we've got Justina Slowiak, who talked about a hadrosauroid specimen that was found in Mongolia. It was found in 1963 during the Polish-Mongolian paleontological expeditions. It's probably Gobi Hadros. That's the only large hadrosaur known from the area. And they found pathologies on the pedal phalanx and caudal vertebra. In other words, a toe claw and a tail vertebra? hmm They said there were these calcific deposits on the joint surface, so it's probably pathologies that are age-related. The histology supported this. There was an absence of what they call post-traumatic changes in the affected bones. Hmm, like healing after damage. It was just like a slow, nasty change. Yeah, and if any of this sounds familiar, we actually talked about this paper in a fun fact in episode 344 because they used this to define, to give a new definition of what a senile dinosaur is. (laughs) That's right, senile dinosaurs. And it's not just, just because it's big doesn't mean it's old. Yeah. And they wanted another version after adult, another stage after adult to the senescent dinosaurs. I remember that. <laughs> now on to the posters from this session. Sagbatar Chinzoreg had a poster about a pathology in an ornithomimid, specifically in the metatarsal. And this was a, a large-bodied ornithomimid that was from the upper Cretaceous of Mississippi in, found in the U.S., That's cool. We don't hear about a lot of dinosaurs from Mississippi. Mm -hmm. So they did histology on this metatarsal. It had abnormal bone growth. And these lesions that they found were consistent with a traumatic fracture with chronic callus formation and delayed healing caused by instability of the bone fragments at the fracture points. Yeah, I guess if you can't get a cast, it takes longer to heal. Mm -hmm. Dinosaurs couldn't get casts. And then it just makes it worse. Yeah. 
So it's probably there was a traumatic fracture that was followed by a bacterial infection that eventually destroyed the bone. Oh, no. Chronic osteomyelitis. Oh, boy. But based on the isolated nature of the pathology in the metatarsal, the infection or the where all the pain was, the chronic osteomyelitis was probably not the main cause of this dinosaur's death. Okay. <laughs> so it broke its foot, and one of the main bones of the foot, mm-hmm. it got completely infected and grew all funky yes. and messed up, but it still was okay for a while. Yeah, something Seems else like, probably killed it. Yeah, I mean, like, it got eaten because it couldn't walk anymore. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you look at it that way, like, say if it did get attacked because it couldn't walk, then you could argue that it was the main cause of death. Yeah. <laughs> But it's not like the infection spread and killed it or something. Yeah. And it appeared to heal a little bit. So if it was going to get eaten because it was gimpy, it probably would have happened quickly. And then the last poster from the session was by Sung Jun Bog. And it was on a bone histology of Koreaceratops. And this is the first bone histology research on Koreaceratops. And Koreaceratops, you can probably guess from the name, was found in Korea. Mm-hmm. The fossil is incomplete, but they took histological samples from the right fibula and the right tibia, and they found that this specimen was about eight or nine years old when it died, and it wasn't mature yet. And they also found the bones bioeroded by fungal and bacterial tunneling. Okay, so that would have been after it was dead. Yeah, it occurs usually in environments with moderate soil moisture and seasonal fluctuation in temperature and, and water. Yeah, I could, uh, you need a fair amount of moisture in order to get a fungus growing. Yeah. But the bacterial tunneling, I don't, I don't remember that one. Didn't know bacteria could tunnel through bone. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> so they're saying this poor histological preservation could support the theory of a seasonal semi-arid paleoclimate in the Cretaceous and what's now Korea. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because that had to happen right when it died. Mm-hmm. It's not the... Fungus and the bacteria aren't going to go through a fossil, mm-hmm. so they had to do it in the first 100,000 or so years before it fossilized. That's interesting. I never thought about using how a bone decayed as a record for what the environment looked like. That's <laughs> yeah. really interesting. Yeah, it just shows you all the different kinds of information you can get. Yeah, there's there's still so many ways that I've never seen, I'm sure. <laughs> All right, that wraps up SVP 2021. We did it. We did. It was a lot. And we still got the bonus content, (laughs) but we've done all the dinosaur ones now. Good. (laughs) (laughs) We have a couple of non-SVP related news items, because as Garrett mentioned, I couldn't help myself. Now, this first one, there's a company called T-Rex Holding LTD that's opening up Metarex, an NFT marketplace. And they're going to start by offering the first collection of T-Rex fossil NFTs. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) That was kind of my first reaction. Then I dug into it a little bit more and and I really like their mission. So their plans are to raise money to acquire a T-Rex skeleton that is owned by a private collector now and then donate that specimen to science. They're going to make it available for research and put it on display in a museum. And they also said they're following SVP's code of ethics, and they're going to be working with a team of paleontologists to supervise the preservation, transport, and management of the fossil. Cool. 
it's interesting because we talked about Thomas Carr's paper where they were like, scientists shouldn't buy fossils because that just makes it worse. But what if scientists get involved with NFT trading in order to buy <laughs> fossils? Probably just makes the NFT and the whole thing with, you know, depending on which NFT they're using, there might not be an enormous climatic effect there, but. I think they made their own. I'm not sure. Oh, interesting. That would be interesting. But it's probably based on ether. It would be my guess. Ethereum. Yeah. I was looking more on the dinosaur side of this story. They've got this whole white paper. It talks about, you know, they've got the sale of Stan that went for nearly 32 million U.S. dollars. And there's other very expensive dinosaur specimens. And so this is a way to get those kinds of specimens in museums. Their NFT collection, they're going to have 59,000 unique NFTs that represent the 58 bones of this particular T-Rex specimen that they'll be purchasing. And each NFT will represent 0.1% ownership of the corresponding digitized bone. So if you have the NFT, that doesn't mean you own part of the actual fossil, only the digitized version. Mm, That's good. Yeah, and then they're going to use all the funds they get to buy the T-Rex, transport it, store it, everything. And then they're going to develop an online resource where you can visit a virtual 3D model of the T-Rex and get more information about the specimen. And they specifically talked about the metaverse. But again, I was focusing on the dinosaur part. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wonder if they're going to be different prices for different NFTs, because I could imagine like the skull, even if it's split a thousand ways, that's going to be by far the most popular. Whereas if it's like a single rib from the Gastralia or something, it's not going to be nearly as exciting. Maybe. I think they're going to do several rounds, so I don't know exactly how that'll work out. But if you are an NFT holder, you can participate in a naming rights auction. You can name the specimen, give it a nickname. Yeah, that's a reasonable thing to auction off. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't find too many details about the actual T-Rex specimen. It does say that it's, quote, greater than 45% density completion. (laughs) What? Yeah. Density completion. I, I'm not sure exactly. Maybe that's what they mean. It's 45% complete. I wonder, yeah, they might mean that it's 45% complete by weight. Mm. Like, you know, because if you have the skull, but you're missing seven ribs, it's it's not like, oh, you have an eighth of it <laughs> if those are the only bones. Right. It's really like most of it. I'm guessing there's not too many details because it's still in a private collection. And then there's no details about the owner. Yeah, I was thinking that they didn't even know which one they were going to buy, but then you said the specific number of bones, Mm -hmm. and then so they must know. This reminds me of the crowdfunding for Stan, I think it was. Mm. There was like a GoFundMe or something for buying Stan and- Making it public, publicly available. Yeah, exactly. And they barely raised any money and obviously failed. So maybe this will work. But I'm not holding my breath. Well, the sale began earlier this month, so maybe we'll hear more. I also was hearing recently how a lot of times NFTs, the fees for like converting currency and then the like purchasing of the NFT and the minting of the NFT is really expensive. So even just like giving away free NFTs can cost a couple hundred dollars. Mm. So yeah, I hope they're doing it in a way where there aren't crazy numbers of fees. But yeah. It sounds like this whole thing is a bit experimental and they'll be learning and changing as they go along. But I do like their goals. Yeah. Yeah. I think NFTs started out from a reasonable place because it's like, 
the way art is, you know, if you physically have a copy of something, obviously that's exciting. But now that everything's getting more digital, everybody has a copy of it, right? Because Mm -hmm. you just download the JPEG or you pay somebody and then you get the JPEG, but then you can redistribute it and it's hard to prove that you were the one that bought it. So the NFTs did solve that problem, but it just immediately got filled with fraud and got filled with all sorts of crazy practices so that it kind of ruined a good thing almost before it started. Mm -hmm. I think it's still early days, so we'll be seeing a lot of experimenting and changes. Yeah, I'm still I'm still hopeful about NFTs. I think they could be cool, but as they are right now, they're, <laughs> they're kind of a mess. <laughs> and last in the news, something a little less high tech. <laughs> in Paris, France, Jardin des Plantes has evolution on a path to enlightenment on display. And there are these illuminated silk sculptures that move a little bit. And you can walk through it and see development and biodiversity over time. So it starts with the Precambrian marine creatures. And, and then it's got dinosaurs from the Jurassic and Cretaceous. From what I could see in the videos and the photos, they've got a stegosaur. But it's like really interesting. It's It shows some rib bones, kind of ends in rib bones. But then the top half is like how you normally see these lit up dinosaurs Hmm. so when you say silk sculptures what does that mean like how we've seen at different zoos some different glow-in-the-dark events okay so it's got like a sort of a rigid structure and then it's just and it's it's illuminated it's lit up okay it's like a big fancy lantern basically yeah yeah. but they move a little bit maybe some arms or the neck or something for some reason i was imagining like free-flowing silk in like a really ephemeral sort of... Oh, there might be a little bit of that. They did have some jellyfish, but I didn't look too closely. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> in the dinosaur side, they've also got Velociraptor and this really large T-Rex. It's You can actually walk through the T-Rex's mouth <laughs> and it's all lit up. And then you walk out the other side. That'd be fun to do. They also have birds and mammals from today, including this really pretty whale. So it's open from now until January 30th of next year, if anyone's in Paris. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone. There are a lot of dinosaur hotspots in the world, and high on our list of places to visit is Brazil, because there are so many cool dinosaur sites in that country. Yes, it's home to some of the earliest dinosaurs, like Saturnalia, a small, long-necked dinosaur that weighed just a little more than a house cat. And then there's Austroposeidon, the largest known dinosaur from Brazil. It's about 82 feet or 25 meters long. And the carnivorous Thanos. Yes, that Thanos, named for the Marvel Comics supervillain. Plus, some really amazing sites like the one recently described where people from thousands of years ago made rock carvings to go alongside dinosaur tracks. Yeah, petroglyphs and footprints in one place. Mm-hmm. We'll definitely want to learn Portuguese before we visit Brazil. One thing we've learned from our travels is you have a lot more fun adventures when you know the local language. Yeah, and places like petroglyphs aren't always near big cities, so it's very useful to have some local language knowledge. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in handy. It's designed and refined by language learning experts, and the lessons are immersive. There's also an audio companion, which is great when you're commuting, taking long walks, or even doing chores around the house. Perfect for when you're waiting for the next Dino Dino episode to drop. So, saúde, or cheers, 
Join now at rosettastone.com slash dino for a special limited time offer just for our listeners, and you'll get over 50% off for a lifetime membership. It's worth $399, but you can get it for just $179, and you'll get access to all 25 language courses. Again, that's rosettastone.com slash dino. This episode is brought to you by Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them on a dig this summer and help advance our scientific understanding of the ancient world. This is a 16-day immersive paleontology experience in Northwest Colorado. The fossilized bones that are being excavated are public, and they'll be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. And the bone bed is really cool. It's atypical for the Morrison Formation. And the current thinking is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus acting as a log jam, and then other carcasses are piling up behind it. So you imagine a river flowing until a big old Brachiosaurus blocks the whole thing and a bunch of littler dinosaurs are piling up. Yeah. Oh, man. There have been two digs scheduled. There's May 27th to June 11th and July 1st to July 16th. Also, in conjunction with the dig, there are two immersive lab techniques programs available. College credit is available for both programs for those interested, and you can go to cncc.edu slash dinodig to get all the details and register online. Again, that's cncc.edu for Colorado Northwestern Community College slash D-I-N-O-D-I-G. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Hypsellospinus, which was a request from Tyrant King via our Patreon and Discord. So thank you. This also goes with a request for Darwinsaurus, and they're related, so putting them together. Hypsilospinus was an iguanodontian that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now East Sussex, England. It's also possibly been found in Spain. It was first described as a species of iguanodon by Richard Lidecker in 1889, and it looks similar to iguanodon. You know, it's quadrupedal with a bulky body and a long tail. The type species is Hypsilospinus fittini. And the genus name means high thorn. That refers to its high vertebral spines. The species name is in honor of William Henry Fitton. It was a lightly built dinosaur. It was estimated to be almost 20 feet or 6 meters long. You don't hear a lot about lightly built quadrupedal dinosaurs. That's kind of weird. Might have been one of those facultative bipeds where they could spend some of the time on two legs and some of the time on four legs. Right, being an iguanodontian. It also had, quote, long, narrow, and steeply inclined neural spines. And it had a rectangular-shaped skull and a broad snout, probably for cropping plants. The fossils were first found near Rye in 1866. Then in 2010, it got the name Hypsilospinus from David Norman, who reclassified it as its own genus. The holotype of Hypsilospinus includes a left ilium, sacrum, tail vertebrae, and teeth. Oh, that's interesting. So it's basically all right around the hips and base of the tail, and then teeth. Yeah. <laughs> and the vertebrae had some unique features, which is how it became reclassified. Later in 2010, Carpenter and Ishida reclassified Iguanodon fitni to a new genus, Wadhurstia. They apparently didn't see the paper for Hypsilospinus. Yeah, well, it looks like they got published in the same year, right? And a lot of times these papers take a year or two to get through the whole review process. So yep. the Hypsilospinus one made it through the press before the Wadhurstia made yep. it out. And since Hypsilospinus was named first, 
Watt Herzia became the junior objective synonym. That's how you end up with stuff like Martian Cope trying to rush out names as fast as possible before the other one can publish it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think that was the happening here. But no. Yeah. <laughs> no, not a hundred years after the thing was found. <laughs> also, I don't think there's a big rivalry here. <laughs> oh, true. In 2012, Gregory Paul named Darwin Saurus evolutionist based on a partial skeleton. These were also fossils that used to be classified as Iguanodon fitni that Richard Owen had described in 1842, but not everyone agrees with this. In 2015, Bexhill Museum in the UK had a Hypsilospinus skeleton on display, and it was based on more fossils found in the area, including a well-preserved tailbone. So their skeleton ended up having most of the bones, including the arms and legs. It was just missing the thumb spike. Though a specimen in the Natural History Museum of London has been found with a partial right forearm and thumb spike, and that spike was around three inches or eight centimeters long. Hmm. So it turns out we have got a relatively complete skeleton. I was wondering how you knew the shape of the head from just the teeth and a little bit of the <laughs> around the hips. Yep, that's at the Bexel Museum. And our fun fact of the day is comparing the deepest diving humans to the deepest diving dinosaurs. So you did a deep dive on deep dives? <laughs> I did. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> that was really clever. I was thinking about this because when we were talking about the Bahari Oasis and the Spinosaurus, I was I was thinking, how deep could Spinosaurus dive? And there's no way we could possibly figure that out. It's hard even to figure out how deep birds dive. Basically, the only reason we can figure it out is because now we have fancy technology that we can attach to a bird and cut it loose and then measure get that data off of the tracker later and mm. see how deep it dove. But fortunately, we can do that now so we can compare our abilities to bird abilities. Spoiler alert, dinosaurs are way more impressive than humans, even in the water. <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention the air and on land and everywhere else. But they they have some really amazing adaptations. So yeah, we've got farms. Yeah. We do have farms. <laughs> That's helpful <laughs> if you're trying to proliferate. So the deepest unassisted human dive is 102 meters or 335 feet. That's still impressive. It's insane. I have no idea how you do that. I If I go below about 10 or 20 feet, I get really uncomfortable. I want to go back up to the surface. Cannot imagine going, what is that, 30 times plus that far? That's crazy. So... There is a organization called ADA, which stands for the International Association for the Development of Apnea. The only other time I've heard the word apnea, sleep apnea, mm -hmm. which is when you're snoring and basically you stop breathing and it's, it can be really bad for you. Some people wear masks and things to prevent sleep apnea because apnea on its own just means going without breathing. And it can be intentional. So when animals hibernate, they use periods of apnea to sort of lower the metabolism. And then you can apnea is also what it's called when you hold your breath underwater whether you're a human or a whale or a seal or a penguin it's all apnea so they have all sorts of different records they have like static apnea where you just lay in a pool face down and see how long you can go without breathing the record is well over 10 minutes wow which is insane and if you breathe pure oxygen instead of just you know going face down in the water you can go above 20 minutes 
What? Without taking a single breath. Yeah, people have gone well over 20 minutes breathing pure oxygen for like 30 minutes and just going face down in a pool. Wow. It's really amazing. The thing. So humans are not that lame. You know, if we really try hard, we can do pretty cool stuff. It just doesn't come as easily to us as it does to dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. So the record of 102 meters or 335 feet is for the constant weight without fins, they call it. That's what Ada calls it. They have to call it that because there are all these different versions of diving. So constant weight without fins means you don't change your weight as you go down or up and you're not wearing any fins. So it's basically just a person diving. It's what you'd think of when you think of free diving. But free diving is actually a broad category of all sorts of things, including stuff like variable weight, which is basically you get pulled by a heavy sled straight down. And then on the way back up, there's a rope that goes along the sled that kind of guides the sled. You can like tug yourself back up on the rope and you can also wear fins. Super cheaty. It does not seem like free diving <laughs> at all to me. But surprisingly, that only increases the maximum distance by about 50% wearing fins and using that weight that you drop at the bottom and then swim back up. So the record there is only 150 meters or 492 feet. I thought it'd be way higher because it's it just seems like that would really make it a lot easier. But I think the issue is when you get deeper and deeper, it gets really unpleasant. Yeah. So getting that extra 50% is actually a lot of work. The other category, the most insane category, is called no limits diving. And that allows using basically anything you want to pull you down and pull you back up. Hmm. So it's it's basically like a stress test on your body. It's not really swimming in any way at that point because basically what they do is they have a big weight that yanks you down really fast. Then you like pull a lever to release yourself and then you inflate an inflatable to like shoot back up. It's like taking an elevator ride underwater. Yeah, except you can't breathe. <laughs> yeah. And the, the pressure is really intense on your body. The current record for no limits diving is 214 meters or 702 feet. Oh my gosh. Which is crazy. And there was a person that made it to like 250, but he got brain damage. Mm. And people die all the time trying this because it's super dangerous. You can get uh, decompression sickness. So I always thought you could only get decompression sickness when you're scuba diving because when you dive down and you breathe in compressed air, you have more air like in your circulatory system basically. And then when you come up really quickly, that air can undissolve. Basically it nucleates within your blood vessels and that can cause really bad problems. Like it can kill you basically if it's bad enough. So you have to be really careful when you're scuba diving to come up really slowly because you're breathing that compressed air. But it turns out if you dive to really insane depths, you can get it even without breathing any compressed air. Because when you dive all the way down, the air that's in your lungs gets pressed into your veins and arteries and everything. And the, the air that is inside all of those spaces, when you come back up, nucle can nucleate out if you just do the really ridiculous levels of this. So the limit for how deep you can dive is related more to not dying from decompression illness than anything else. So, that sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah. So mammals that dive all the time, like whales, what they actually do is they take a deep breath at the surface and then they exhale. That's what that big fountain is. They breathe out before they dive. So they're actually diving with empty lungs 
which is also crazy to me because it seems like, can you imagine exhaling all the way before you dive nope. for like a half hour? <laughs> it's crazy. But that way, when they come back up, they're less likely to get that decompression sickness. So that's what most mammals do. Interestingly, birds can't do that. Because birds have those lungs, which are rigid, and they use the air sacs to inflate and deflate. So no matter what a bird does, they can't deflate their lungs. They're they're stuck with air in their lungs when they dive, and there's nothing they can do about it. But even with that, they can dive a lot deeper than people can. (laughs) How much? So according to Guinness, the deepest dive for a flying bird is 210 meters or 690 feet. (laughs) Which is basically twice as far as a person can dive, you know, if you're doing the constant weight without fins. We can get to about that far if we go on a sled on a rope and inflate a thing and all that. But that's not really, if you did a bird, if the bird could do that, it could probably get a lot deeper too. Mm -hmm. This is from the thick-built muir, which is a type of auk. And they're mostly using their wings to swim. So it looks actually pretty cute when they're swimming because they're just like flapping their wings going down, down, down. Interestingly, when you get below 200 meters in the ocean, there's almost no sunlight, even at high noon, and it's called the twilight zone. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it's wonderful. Thick-billed muirs can do multiple three-minute dives in a row with only a brief gasp of air at the surface. Wow. They don't usually dive that deep because there isn't a ton of food in that area that they're looking for. They tend to go like 10 to 40 meters and then just swim horizontally for a long time and then pop up, get a little bit of air, and then go back down. And the really cool thing about them is they actually ascend in a similar way to using an inflatable like people do, but they do it naturally because they have air trapped in their feathers and it expands when they get near the surface again and it helps them accelerate up at the end. So it's really cool. It's like they have a built-in inflatable like the No Limits divers. Additionally, they're pretty capable flyers. They can fly 100 kilometers or 62 miles to get to their food source. and then <laughs> They can do, all the do it driving. all. Yeah. They're apparently really, as far as flying goes, they're really inefficient at it because they their wings are more or less flippers, but they are functionally wings and flippers. It's just one of the coolest birds. The deepest diving bird, though, is the emperor penguin. The world record for that that we've measured, there were some researchers that stuck tags on penguins around Antarctica, and they found one specific penguin that went deeper than the others. Most of them go about 400 meters deep, which is crazy. That's like a quarter mile (laughs) down. But there was one that regularly was going below 500 meters and its deepest dive was 564 meters or 1,850 feet, over half a kilometer, well over a quarter mile in depth. And again, they can't exhale. So no one knows why they don't die of decompression sickness when they come back up. (laughs) They just, they do somehow. We know that they have way more red blood cells than we do. That might be related to it. They seem to ascend in sort of a gradual way. They take like a shallow angle as they're coming up. They don't just come straight back up. They come up at a gradual angle so they don't ascend too fast. Maybe that's why they don't get the decompression sickness. But they're literally going down like a quarter mile and then back up and they're totally fine. And they can come back up and then go right back down over and over again. Whereas with humans... The recommendation is if you go more than 100 meters down in a dive, you don't do any more diving that day Mm -hmm. because the nucleating bubbles in your bloodstream can build up throughout the day. So the deeper you're diving, the less dives you should do in a day. But these birds somehow can't deflate their lungs, can dive way deeper than us, and some of them can even fly. It's really impressive. 
it makes me think Spinosaurus as a diver really doesn't seem that ridiculous. If a flying bird can figure <laughs> out how to fly and do all this stuff, like why not Spinosaurus? It could be. We can't track Spinosaurus the way we track these birds. No, we can't, unfortunately. I, I, I feel it's safe to say, though, that there was at least some non-avian theropod that was doing a fair amount of diving. Hesperonis. Yeah, that's true. We know of you. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of Vino Dino. And if you want to help us shape the show, remember to head over to bit.ly slash IKD survey 21 to let us know what you'd like us to change or keep the same about the show. Thanks again. And until next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.